The skies are filled with your glory The oceans mirror your grace How deep, how high, how wonderful you are The earth is telling your mystery The heavens sing your praise how deep, how high, how wonderful you are, you are. We're living to tell your story now, your glory and grace, oh
so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your glory. We pray that you would help us to preach. And so, Father, if there's anything that I say that's not true, would you erase it from everybody's brain before they walk out of this building? And yet, Lord God, if I speak things that are your truth, your life, your love, would you pound them into the depths of our heart so that we would never forget? In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Well, last time, uh, you remember that Sharon uh, shared a great message and her story talked about the prodigal son out of Luke chapter 15. And the time before that, we were in the Gospel of John. We've been preaching through the Gospel of John. And in the last message, we preached on the invasion of the planet Earth by the kingdom of God. And we discovered that it was like a sneak attack, an invasion from the inside out. And so the glory of God was veiled. For six days, in John chapter 1, the Word in flesh, Jesus, just walks around with these guys called disciples that follow him. And so it makes sense that we would ask the question, where are they going? Chapter 2, the seventh day. In chapter 2, verse 11, John writes, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Today is the seventh day, it's our Sabbath. If Jesus were to appear and do some miraculous sign, in order uh, to manifest his glory so that we would believe, what do you think he'd do? Maybe stand on a mountain and transfigure into brilliant light to reveal his glory? Maybe calm a storm, you know, like a hurricane barreling down on New Orleans. Could you see him marching on the Capitol Preaching, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Could you see him walking through Denver General and healing the sick, raising the dead? Could you see him walking down East Colfax, transforming heroin, lace needles, and old syringes into textbooks and jobs, or transforming guns into flowers and trees and parks, transforming old jugs of wine into sparkling spring water. Could you see him? On the seventh day, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 1, in order to manifest his glory that we might believe, Jesus goes to a party and provides the booze. Read it. He changes water into wine. Sorry if that bugs you, but in this church, we've decided to uphold the authority of Scripture, so let's just give it a look, okay? John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, the third day is obviously an allusion to the resurrection and to the coming age, the new age. But from the way John writes his gospel, the third day is also the seventh day, if you count them. The seventh day 
from the creation of everything in chapter one, verse one. In Genesis, you may remember that there are seven days of creation. We talked about that quite a book, uh, quite a bit. And since time is relative to light, and since we're still being created, it becomes rather obvious that we're living in the sixth day. But on the seventh day, we're finished. Creation is finished. The seventh day is the goal, and the goal is eternal. In John's revelation, there are these amazing series of overlapping sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders, and seven bowls. When the seventh seal is opened, and the seventh trumpet, and the seventh thunder sound, and the seventh bowl of blood is poured out, there is a new earth, a new earth. And a great party, the wedding supper of the Lamb, and enough fluid from the great wine press to fill the entire land to the depth of a horse's bridle. According to ancient church documents from the second century AD, the anti Marcionite prologue to the Gospel of Luke, according to those ancient documents, John received the revelation in exile on the island of Patmos, and then later on, on Ephesus, he wrote the gospel, the gospel according to John. And that confirms a suspicion that I've had ever since we uh, preached through the revelation. I published a, a book on that topic several years ago. You see, I think the gospel of John is so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke because on Patmos, Jesus revealed to John his story, the gospel from the perspective of heaven, which caused John to remember events and dialogue that years before had seemed insignificant or downright absurd, but now John sees. Third day is the seventh day, is a wedding feast, and Jesus provides the wine. Amazing, blood red wine. Verse two, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And now in that day, a wedding would last an entire week, seven days. And so this seventh day is like a whole new age. Verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they got no wine. Mary, the mother of Jesus, picture of mother church says, Jesus, we need wine. Jesus, we need some wine. As if she expects him to be like the life of the party. You see, wine is kind of like the life of the party. The rabbis had a saying, without wine, there is no joy. It's clear in scripture that wine is a gift of God. It's also clear that drunkenness is, is a sin. We'll talk about that more next time. But if you're an alcoholic, don't drink. And please don't worry. I, you, you will drink again one day with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will. And yet in our story, the lack of wine is a problem. It's a, it's a big embarrassment and a terrible damper on the party. So Mary says, Jesus, they got no wine. Next verse. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, whenever a, a Bible verse strikes you as kind of odd, pay extra attention to that Bible verse. Why does he call her woman? 
Is he talking to more than just his biological mother? And what's his hour? When is his hour? What happens at his hour? And is he going to provide wine or not? He says, woman, what do you want me to do about it? My hour for making wine at the wedding feast has not yet come. And I, and I love this next line. It proves that Mary was really Jesus' mother, his Jewish mother. Mom, what do you want me to do about it? Next verse, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons, six. Now six is really an important number. And that the six jars were used for ritual cleansing according to the law is likewise really important. And that there is a fluid in the revelation with which you can wash your garments white as snow and thus gain entrance to the wedding party and the tree of life. Well, that may also be rather important. Next verse. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, the master of the feast is like the head waiter, the party planner. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. See, the party planner doesn't know where the wine came from. Uh, he's just amazed that the good wine is served last. Because normally you get folks all liquored up and then you serve the cheap stuff. And in this world, we kind of assume that's what happens. In this world, we assume people are trying to con us because almost always they are. But not Jesus. And you see, maybe that's the real sign. The real miracle. The real presence of another age. No, it really did turn water into wine. And yet you know, don't you, that that happens all the time. I mean, wine is water and earth mixed with light that turns to life and hangs us blood-red fruit on, on wood, a vine or, or a tree. And you see, no one can explain how that works. Any better than they can explain how water in earthen pots could turn to wine in the presence of Jesus. And you know, we just read that Jesus is the light and the life. And through him, all things are made. Through him and his amazing tree. And so the wine in our communion cups is no less miraculous than the wine in those six stone jars. Well, anyway, let's, let's just get this story straight. For Jesus' inaugural miracle and sign, the sign that reveals where we're going when we follow, the sign that tells us what the six days of creation are all about and why we travel through this world of sorrow and pain, for Jesus' inaugural sign, which manifests his glory, he turns bathwater into like 180 gallons of really good wine. 
in order to jumpstart a party. He really is the life of a party, the party. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. This manifested his glory, making wine. And his disciples believed in him. They drank the wine. Then they believed in him. Now, that doesn't mean that they believed he existed. They already believed he existed. They believed in him. In other words, they trusted his heart. They heard the music and joined the dance. They trusted the logos, the reason, the word, the rhythm of the dance, the heart of God. And, and I get that. Jesus, if this is really where we're going, Well, I'd like to follow, even if it means picking up a cross. I get that. This is me on the happiest day of my life. May 28, 1983, my wedding day. We invited everyone that we knew, our whole church, friends, relatives, family. Over 500 people came to our wedding. And after the wedding, they were all invited down to this huge banquet hall just off of I-70 near the Purina plant, you know, right down the street here. We didn't have wine, but uh, you see, we, we had beer. And uh, we uh, had all kinds of guests. Um, this is my cousin, Tim. This is my cousin Steve. Now, uh, Tim and Steve and also my cousin Chris, they're, they're from Golden. And they like to hunt and they work construction. I mean, they're rednecks, okay? And uh, this right here, this is Sharon Mesker between Aunt Peggy and Aunt Betty. And you see, they all came to my party and everybody seemed to enjoy everybody else. Sharon, uh, she runs a Christian TV program here in Denver. And my redneck cousins, everybody hung out with everybody. And see, that's what made the party so great. Not everybody was the same. My crazy cousins sat with little old ladies that taught my Sunday school class. They built a beer can pyramid under their table. And then they had a truck pushing contest in the parking lot. And everybody seemed to enjoy everybody else. Like they stopped judging each other. There was this amazing diversity and a beautiful unity, a unity which was their love for me and Susan. We had these three old guys playing an organ, a, a drum set, and an accordion. They were called the Columbine Airs, and everybody danced, everybody danced. It was like they forgot themselves and got lost in love for each other, all giving, and the giving was the greatest taking. I lost myself. I mean, I really had trouble remembering things at the party, like where I put my car keys, where our luggage was. I lost myself, but not because I hated myself. Myself was so satisfied, so happy. I, I, I for once, wasn't worried about myself. I, I lost myself in the party and in utter amazement that Someone as wonderful and beautiful as Susan would love a guy like me. 
Well, it turns out that I left the car keys with my best man, Dave Jones. And so he and my groomsmen got into the luggage and taped all of our underwear and some stuff they brought at some store I can't mention. They taped it all over the car in front of everybody. But I forgave them. I forgave everybody that day. It was easy. It was natural to forgive. For the entire day was grace. And everybody was generous. And that night the party continued. We had dated and waited for five and a half years. But that night, diversity, male and female, was joined in unity. Communion in the sacrament of the covenant, a dance of love that was life and produced love and life. And, and, and I, I lost myself. I lost myself in ecstasy and everything was grace. The happiest day of my life so far. And I think God is saying, Peter, Peter, that's what I'm about. So would you trust me? Even when you feel a cross strapped across your back, trust me. And now let me say, some of you may have felt a cross strapped across your back even as you watched my little slideshow. Perhaps you're not married, and you really want to be. Or perhaps you're married, and it feels like hell. Perhaps you've struggled with your sexuality all these years. Perhaps you're addicted to wine or alcohol. You've been fighting it forever, it seems. Or maybe you have a great marriage, and you enjoy fine wine, but you realize it's still just not enough. Well, do you see that wherever you are, in sorrow or in joy, the, the wedding party taps into the deepest desires of your heart. A longing for intimacy, communion, ecstasy, and joy. You see, it's a longing for heaven. It's a longing for your home. A longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the glory of God is his ability to give it to you and that he has given it to you and that he longs for you to receive it. You know, I think if you really saw his glory, I think you would really believe. I think you would really trust. And if you really trusted, you would want to follow and if need be, even pick up a cross. A cross. Have, have you discovered that following Jesus is really hard it's hard to be faithful when everyone seems unfaithful. It's hard to tell the truth when everyone expects you to lie. It's hard to really love when our very economy runs on greed. It's hard to lose yourself when your very flesh is constantly begging for attention. It's hard to pick up a cross, but Jesus said, unless you pick up a cross, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot follow. One morning this week, I was complaining to Susan while I was getting dressed for work. I said, honey, I feel bad saying this, but sometimes I just really struggle. I struggle with asking people to follow Jesus because it's so hard. Without skipping a beat, she said, of course you feel bad. 
you're asking them to pick up a cross. And that's true. I'm asking you to pick up a cross and follow Jesus. Uh, but tonight I'm saying, but, but, but look where we're going. You know, on the morning of my wedding, nobody had to say, you better get up on time. You better brush your teeth today. You know, you really ought to put on something nice. You ought to wear something nice. And today, Peter, uh, you better not shoot heroin. You better not rob a liquor store or, or sleep with strippers. Nobody had to say that to me. Now, if I really didn't want to get married, maybe they would need to. If I didn't want to get married, I might have done all that stuff the night before and called it a bachelor party. But you see, I desperately wanted to be married to Susan. And I didn't want anything to mess up the party to which I was planning to go the following day. And check this out. This is a picture of me. That's my father who performed the wedding ceremony. This is a picture of me signing my life away. It's a picture of me literally signing my life away in joy. Before this moment, I did what I wanted to do. I hung my ski posters where I wanted to hang them. I, uh, I cashed my own paycheck and spent my money as I pleased. After this moment, it was no longer me, but we. I was only allowed to hang my ski posters in the garage. And we didn't have a garage, figure that out. Every paycheck, every paycheck since that moment, I simply handed to her, handed them to her. You see, I gave her permission to hurt me like no one else in all the world. Permission to pound the nails if that's what it took to prove my love. When I signed this covenant, I signed my life away in ecstasy for the joy that was set before me. Now imagine if I didn't see Susan sitting next to me or before me. But I signed my life away just because someone said it was good. And I should. Well, it wouldn't feel good. It'd feel like hell. And I would think the good was hell because I couldn't see that the good was Susan. And you see, that brings up a really, really important point, and that is this. The wedding party, that is the kingdom of heaven, isn't simply a place. It's also a state of mind, a state of the heart, so faith in your destination changes the way that you follow, but the way that you follow also changes your destination, or at least when it is that you finally arrived. What I mean is that although my wedding party was heaven for me, it may very well have been hell for somebody else. Perhaps they were abused as a child. And so we're now terrified of men. The thought of male and female joined as one just filled them with a deep sense of dread they, they could not understand. Perhaps they themselves were an adulterer and so they were offended or they were hiding in shame or perhaps they just idolized themselves and so weren't interested in anybody else at the party or perhaps uh, they, they were greedy and so just pouted to themselves in the corner. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to, cry if I want to. Perhaps they felt competitive with me and so my happiness made them angry. 
And so they felt sorry for themselves and hated me like the older brother hated his younger brother in the story last week. And so went to the outer darkness to stand in the field alone. Whatever the case, you see a person like that is stuck in themselves and so will not and cannot join the party. Surrounded by party, but not at the party. For the party feels like hell. My heaven, their hell. Perhaps hell is a self-imposed prison for party poopers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then Paul goes through a whole list of, of sins, uh, from greed to adultery, a, a list that would really stress you out if you read it slowly, because you would realize that you had committed almost every one of those sins. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Then verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. That is, the unrighteous do inherit the kingdom, but only after they've been washed with something that renders them no longer unrighteous, like changes their nature inside and out. You see, if you're unrighteous, you can't enjoy a kingdom of righteousness. If you're greedy, you can't enjoy a kingdom of generosity where everybody's giving all the time. If you're unfaithful, you can't enjoy a kingdom of faithfulness. If you're all about taking, you can't enjoy the party, the kingdom of love. In fact, love will burn your sin like the hottest of fires. And if you think that you are your sin, it'll burn you. Sin keeps you from enjoying the party. Sin keeps you from joining the party. That's why God hates sin. Not because he's all like offended, like you insulted his fragile God ego or something with your big old sin. No. It's because he desperately wants you at the party. Your party. You see, there's one thing that would have absolutely destroyed the happiest day of my life. And that would have been if the happiest day of my life was not the happiest day of my bride's life. And now listen to the gospel. You are the bride of Christ. And so in this world of space and time, in these six days, you're being prepared. You're being washed. You're being dressed for your wedding. And a party that is a honeymoon that will never end. And because I'm looking at you right now, I'm guessing that you're not quite ready yet. Like me, you're, you're false, addicted to self, terrified of love, real love where you lose yourself and find yourself in another, terrified of love. And so you don't truly love love, and yet your groom is love, truth and love. You don't love love, you love sin. But you see, sin wrecks the party. And sin isn't just sins, like on some list, 
Sin is living by the law in the power of the flesh. Sin is stealing fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin is taking the place of God as the judge. Sin is living by those my life scorecards that we filled out three weeks ago. Sin is what traps you in yourself with yourself. Whether it's in arrogance or in shame, it's a prison of self. See, it's people that are stuck in themselves that wreck every party. And that's why the thing that saves so many parties is wine. Why? Because it kills brain cells. Because alcohol kills brain cells. Booze helps you forget yourself. It helps people forget themselves, die to themselves, and stop judging themselves and everybody around them. Only problem is, it only works for a few hours. And then not very well, and even then it's only a sign and not the substance. So if you get addicted to the sign, you miss the substance and are trapped even deeper in hell. Alcohol's a sign. But Jesus makes the substance. Jesus makes wine for the party that will never end. Jesus said, woman, mother church, bride, woman, Woman, my hour has not yet come. And so he didn't make the substance that day. He made the sign. It wasn't his glory, but it revealed his glory, making wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. However, John will make it exceedingly clear when Jesus' hour does come and just what his glory is. John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 17, 1, he lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It was that night that he took a cup of wine saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Blood that's wine, wine that's blood. In a few hours, outside the city, he would be crucified in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. The judge judged in our place. He would become sin for us. The wrath of God would then crush him, transforming our sin into the love of God poured out the very lifeblood of Jesus. With that blood, he washes us white as snow and fills us with himself so that we are intoxicated with his love. He is the great bridegroom who romances us to himself at his cross. And his cross is a wine press. And there he makes enough wine to fill the entire land to the depth of a horse's bridle. I believe that is exactly what John saw on the island of Patmos. Revelation chapter 14, verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And who is it that treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God? Who is it that treads the winepress and makes this wine? Revelation 19, 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He trampled 
the wine price alone. He suffered and died alone. And yet there he romances us to himself that we would die with him, that we would rise with him, drink the wine with him, and never be alone ever again. You see, when you come to the communion table, you come to the wine press. With his word, that sharp two-edged sword, he cuts off the fruit that he desires. And what fruit is that? Confessed sin. The fruit that befits repentance. Jesus takes your sin and transforms it into wine. His blood, his life. You see, he really is the life of the party. He frees us from the prison of sin, which is ourselves. His wine makes us lose ourselves and find ourselves in him. He washes us with his blood and fills us with his life, the life that unites all things in love. He really is the life of the party. So when we reject him, we reject heaven. (laughs) For he is heaven. We reject him and his life whenever we sin, for sin is the hatred of life, and, and life is love, and love is what holds a party together. We reject him when we sin, and then we reject him continually, constantly, when we refuse to confess that sin, when we refuse to trust his mercy. His grace, which is his wine, his life, and his love poured out. And you see, that's how we trap ourselves in a party pooper's prison that turns into hell. And yet even now, as I speak, the word of God is invading that prison. Your heart. Yourself. I know that you are terrified. I'm terrified. We are terrified. I know that we are terrified to surrender to Jesus because, you see, it involves a cross, the death of self. But I'm saying trust him. For that cross is also a wine press. It's the beginning of a party that never ends. So your sin keeps you from heaven. But confess sin becomes the very wine of the kingdom, wine that jumpstarts a party that never ends. After the word tramples the wine press in Revelation chapter 19, John sees a bride and she's dressed in white and there's a party that never ends. You're the bride. Jesus is your groom. Mary, who is a picture of us. Uh, Mary asked Jesus to make wine, and and you see, he did. I want to show you two movie clips and then have communion. I want to show you three things that are all one thing. The first is from the perspective of earth 2,000 years ago. The second is from the perspective of heaven and the party that never ends, The third is from the perspective of here, right now. This is how Jesus makes wine. He is the life of the party.
sixth day he took bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Wine, that's blood. Blood, that's wine. You see, he's inviting you to the wedding feast. If you want him, come forward. There'll be two stations. Tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. The light cups are juice. The dark cups are wine. As you uh, hold that body and that blood to your lips, the great bridegroom is kissing you with his life. He loves you, and he wants you to love him too. The father performs the ceremony, and so he's asking you a question. Will you have this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? To have and to hold, to honor and obey all the days of your life as long as you both shall live such that you will never die, if so say, I will and I do. I will and I do. Say it louder. I will and I do. Say it louder. I will and I do. Well, then it's time to party. Amen. And so, Lord, we look to the highest place like John did on the island of Patmos in the Revelation, along with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that is within them, we look to the highest place, the very throne of God, and what do we see, Jesus? A lamb. As if it had been slain. It's you making wine for our wedding party. Jesus, you are good. You are so good. And so we worship you. We praise you. I think most of us can say together, 
we kind of at least a little bit sort of, at least like with the mustard seed of faith, we actually want to follow you. In your name we pray and we thank you. Amen. If you'd like to stay and worship, we'd love it if you did that. In the back, Kathleen has a candle. If you'd like someone to pray with, she's back there. She'd love to pray with you. Whatever the case, as you walk out of this place, whether right now or later tonight, follow him because he's good and he adores you. In other words, believe the gospel and worship him. Amen.